0: Turn with me to First Peter chapter 1, verse 17 through 25. We're continuing in our series, A Change in Allegiance. The title of this sermon is called A Compelling Story of Sacrificial Love. We're going to bite off a sizable chunk, uh, but Mother's Day is big, so I'm going to tackle a big section of scripture today. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 through 25. And I'm just going to read through the whole thing. Just allow the, the water of God's word to wash over your souls. Take it in. Starting in verse 17. And if you call on him as father... Who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things like silver and gold. But with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But was manifest... In these last times for the sake of you. Who through him are believers in God. Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So that your faith and your hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. For a sincerely brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed but of imperishable. Through the living An abiding word of God for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we come before you with awe and trembling as those who sense that they are standing on holy ground We believe your presence is here and not just here but actively speaking into the hearts and minds of people. We're not just here with a sense of holy fear and trembling but holy boldness and confidence because the same God who is a holy and consuming fire through Christ has beckoned us come away with me. So Lord we we open up your word and ask that by your spirit you would speak to us in that way that you do. Specifically into each person's life, in the place that they're at, Holy Spirit, would you do just that today? And I pray that what you say to us would cause us to leave this place different than when we came in. We ask that you, Christ, would be made much of, you would be exalted over above all other things, all other people, and that our hearts would be just a little more firmly fastened to the gospel of Jesus Christ than it was yesterday. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Eleanor Roosevelt once said that freedom makes a huge requirement of every human being. With freedom comes responsibility, she says. For the person who is unwilling to grow up, the person who does not want to carry its, his own weight, this is a frightening prospect. She's confronting that sense that is so powerful today that we have been freed, however you want to spell out that freedom, whether it's spiritual or physical, we have been freed to be an island to ourselves, to express ourselves, to live for ourselves To find ourselves. But with freedom comes tremendous responsibility. You have not been freed to live for yourself. You have been freed to be a part of a bigger picture. that's the essential tone of what Peter is going to be dragging us through by our feet today. I want to talk about this large section of scripture. Really in just three headings. One, I want to talk about the weight of a Christian's freedom. That responsibility. Second, I want to talk about, well, how do we be made free? How are we made free? And third, how we can walk in that freedom. The weight, the way to be free, and how to walk in it. Here's what I mean when I speak of the weight of the Christian's freedom, the responsibility that comes with it. Peter opens up the gate and runs through it, saying, if you call on God as your father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, in other words, you are serving a God who is, yes, your, your dad in the most real sense of the word. You've been adopted into a family, but he's not just your buddy. He's not just your dad. He's a holy God who is calling you into a new way of life. And everything that you do, you will be held accountable for. You have to give an account for He then goes on to say, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. He's not saying, hey, be afraid of God, be scared. He's speaking more about that somber realization that our lives count for something. That we might not waste our lives, the next 10, 20, 30 years of our lives, doing nothing or doing everything for ourselves. Says if you call on God, he's speaking to a group of Christians, right? Speaking to a church, saying, if you have called on this God who is your father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, the natural course of action is to conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile. And there's that word again that we've been speaking about every week: exile. This sense that as Christians we are we are exiled, not geographically speaking. But that we are, in a sense, caught between this tension where we live in the city of Santa Barbara, Isla Vista, Goleta. We live in these places as citizens of another kingdom. We don't belong here, and yet we are sent here with a purpose. And that has been the theme of First Peter. You belong to heaven, but you live here with a purpose. And so, that dynamic that we've been wrestling with, how can we live intentionally in our neighborhood, in our spheres of of influence, while being holy and set apart for God? And he refers to that. Through the time of your exile, conduct yourselves with the somber realization that you don't live for yourself anymore. Knowing that you were ransomed, talk about that word ransomed later. But you were ransomed from your feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. In other words, you weren't saved to independence. You were simply transferred. Think of uh, ransomed as being transferred to a new way of life. You left your old way of life, you now have a new way of life. You left your old master, you have adopted a new master. When he speaks of being this, this ransom, I'll, again, I'll speak about it later, but think of this, this concept of being transferred. Colossians 1.13 says that we have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's marvelous Son. We've just simply moved for, to a different way of life. And the old way of life, Peter refers to as the feudal ways inherited from our, our forefathers, handed down to us, are the feudal ways. Futility, and you see that, that word popping up all over the place, especially in Ecclesiastes, if you've ever tried to read through Ecclesiastes and found yourself shutting the book, like in chapter 7, because you're like, I'm not inspired to live my life right now. <laughs> Job, feudal, life, feudal, romance, feudal, Your your whole life, futile breath, futile. <laughs> like, oh, I'm gonna read the Psalms right now. <laughs> the essential tenet of that book, and what Paul is, uh, excuse me, Peter is saying right here, is that there is, apart from being tied intimately to God and His purpose for your life and for the world, tied in intimate relationship and union with God, life is futile. Life does have a sense of, of uh, you think of, uh, think of this word, pointlessness or aimlessness. The sense that no matter how much I do, no matter how much I accomplish, no matter how much I accumulate, no matter how big my house ends up being, no matter how many cars that I have, no matter how high I walk up the ladder, no matter how many, how, no matter how many friends I accumulate, there is this sense that there, there must be more Futility. You might be listening to this, you're not a Christian, and you're like, I I don't, I see what you're saying, but I don't think I live a feudal life, and I certainly don't need God in order to find a point with my life. I do good things. I experience happiness. I give to the poor. I'm involved in this nonprofit. I do good stuff. I'm a pretty good person. There's a point to that. Now, what Peter is saying, or what he's not saying, is that you can't do good things apart from God. He's saying that you can't do things with a deeper sense of purpose other than yourself, apart from God. He's saying that apart from a deep relationship to God, there really is no purpose in doing anything except for ourselves. That life apart from God is truly pointless. And say, well, I I do get, you know, Paul would say this in Romans chapter 1 verse 21, although people knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became, there's that word, futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. There's a sense in the Bible that apart from a deep intimate knowledge with God, everything that we're doing, no matter how good it is, has no ground to stand upon. There's no point. You say, well, I don't agree with that. I do good stuff all the time and it satisfies me. I help people who are in need. I love my family. I love my friends. Now, I'm not saying you can't do those things. I'm going to think of it in this way. It, you think of a very nice wine decanter you know, by Rydell, made of crystal. Supposing you purchased one of those. It was the most valuable thing in your house, and you used it for the rest of your life to fill your radiator with water. Now, could you do that? Absolutely. Would it work? Absolutely. You could go for the rest of your life using this crystal decanter to fill the radiator of your truck or your car with water, and it will work perfectly fine. But there also must be this sense in you that that decanter was made for something far more special than filling a radiator And you could spend your life doing good things and accomplishing stuff and accumulating wealth and making friends, and they will all be good and they might even make you happy. But there also must be this sense in you, deep down inside, that you were created for more than just doing a few good moral things. And so Peter says this, and he says, You you were transferred from futility and pointlessness to knowing exactly what your point in life is. You've been brought to God. And with that is incredible responsibility. You should live like your actions are gonna be held accountable. You've been given so much. The way that we live our lives, the way that we behave actually matters in this life. Well, why? He speaks about the weight of our freedom. Well, then he, uh, in a roundabout way, begins to talk, first of all, about what makes us free to begin with. In order to show why everything we do in this life matters, he goes directly to how he got born again to begin with. He says, You were ransomed from those feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Later, he will speak about being born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, using this word perishable over and over. He's first of all referring to those things that we tend to look at in order to bring ourselves significance. And he crushes them. The first one is money. Silver and gold. You were not redeemed from your sense of pointlessness by getting a bunch of stuff. Now, he's not saying that money is bad. I keep thinking of that song. Money won't buy me happiness, but it'll buy me a truck. (laughs) Money is a blessing. Y'all know it. Money isn't bad. All Peter is saying is it's just not good enough. It's not good enough. Remember, he's not saying here, money didn't get you a truck. Money didn't make you happy for a day. Money didn't help you along the way. He's saying money could not ransom you from a pointless life. In fact, money, which is morally neutral, often simply intensifies or exacerbates what is already going on in the heart. Have you noticed that? If you're a greedy person, having more money will simply help your greed. (laughs) If you're an angry person, money won't make you less angry. Money has this habit of intensifying what's going on in the heart. If you have a healthy heart, money is a blessing. If you have an unhealthy heart, money simply masks what your real need is. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Money simply identifies what you love the most. has a tendency to do that, right? You want to know what your heart truly worships? Look at what you spend the most time, the most of your treasure, the most of your talent on. Look at where your money goes. Look at where your time goes. Look at where your talent goes. That's where your treasure is. The real issue for humanity is not our Pocket books, that's a symptom. The real issue is the heart. Which is why Jesus spent so much time analyzing the heart. It's not money or possessions or fame that have the ability to fix that. Which is something that's really hard for us to grasp unless we've actually had a taste of having everything. A couple months ago, I can't... uh, uh, keep thinking about Jim Carrey's uh, presentation at the Golden Globe Awards where he gets up, he's presenting an award for the best comedy, he gets up there and in classic Jim Carrey fashion says, I am two-time Golden Globe Award winning actor Jim Carrey. When I go to sleep, I'm not just a guy going to sleep, I'm two-time Golden Globe Award winning actor Jim Carrey going to get some well-needed shut-eye. When I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe Award-winning actor, Jim Carrey. Because then, it would be enough. It would actually finally be true, and I could stop this terrible search for what I know won't ultimately fulfill me. Then he goes on to say, but these awards, they're important to much laughter. He was once quoted as saying famously, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything that they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. To which most of us probably say, that's easy for you to say because you're rich. And perhaps most of our prayers, many of our prayers are, Lord, I pray that you would give me the opportunity to find out for myself that money is not the answer. (laughs) But the testimony of so many people over and over and over is that while those things are inherently, can inherently be good, there's still not enough to satisfy the longings in the heart of men and women, what you were created for. Perhaps no one put it better than this, Psalm 49, verse 7 and 8. Truly no man can ransom another man or another person or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. Peter comes into this saying, you have not been ransomed by silver, gold, or possessions. Then he goes on to say, the second thing, you have been born again. Number one, you haven't been ransomed by possessions and money you also haven't been born again by perishable seed but of imperishable right now he's talking about biological families and think of all the ways that we look to natural birth to our redemption we hope that if we could get married we'll be happy and fulfilled we hope that if you know once we're married and we find out that that doesn't do the trick we think well maybe if I have kids and I have a family the idolatry of family that if I have those things, then everything will be fine. We think of natural giftings and talents. Well, if I could just do this, or if I was just able to do that, things would be better. We look at healthy relationships, and we say, you know, though those are good and needed and biblical, we say, well, if I could just have the right friends, things will change inside me. That sense of belonging. If I could just belong to a group, I'm lonely, I feel isolated. If I could just belong, all of my problems will go away. Perhaps we look at opportunity. If I were born into the right family, if I had the opportunities that they had, if I had all of that stuff, then things would be better for me. If I had love, things would be better. And yet I've I've seen people, counseled people, who have had all of these things and have ended, ended their lives. Ended their marriages. Ended their families. Whose souls begin to disintegrate. These things aren't the answer either. And Peter right now is taking the two things that human beings love to fasten their hearts around. Money, family, relationships. And he's saying those will never do what you so deeply need. None of these will satisfy the longing. None of them will be able to break The patterns of sin that you have inherited from your feudal way of thinking, your feudal life. There is a need, and what he's getting at here is you can't do it. Look at the two most popular areas that we gravitate towards uh, our stuff, our things, our money, or our people. You can't do it, Peter is saying. There has to be someone from the outside who steps into your mess and intervenes on your behalf. See where he's going? And he says, you have not been ransomed by silver and gold. You have been ransomed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. From the perishable to the imperishable. You have not been born again through, uh, through perishable seed, but through the living and abiding word of God. What is he talking about when he's speaking about the precious blood of Christ? He's speaking about a self, a sacrificial love beyond anything that any of you have ever experienced. A love that goes deeper than biological family and friends. A love that is thicker than blood. In fact, it was blood that was spilt and shed on the cross as an expression of God's love for people. Have you ever heard of the phrase a king's ransom? You might say something is worth a king's ransom or it's worth a king's ransom meaning it's it's worth a lot. This phrase goes back to the time of the crusades where there was a king in England by the name of Richard the Lion and he was captured by his enemies during war and through, uh, thrown into prison and this colossal ransom was basically asked to the people of England. And so deeply did they love their king that they actually submitted themselves to heavy taxation. Over the process of time, they amassed a fortune and even rich nobles, nobility added to the common people's giving and eventually they filled up the coffers with so much money in order to free their king, a king's ransom. That's what gave uh, birth to the phrase, the ransom of a king. It's used to connote a huge amount of money required to redeem somebody back from bondage. Although in this case, it's not the common people paying for their king, but the king paying with his life the common people, and not with silver and gold and amassed fortune, but by giving his life in a tremendous act of sacrificial love, the king of glory stepping down into our mess and saying, I will pay for your sin and divine treason and hatred and mistakes and mishaps with my own life. Peter goes on to say it's, it's sacrificial love, but it's also through the living and abiding word of God. And he's not just say, speaking about phrases here and there, random arbitrary phrases in the Bible, but the, the whole story. Where he says in the last line, look, this, this word is the good news, is the gospel that was preached to you, the story about a king who left his throne to come after sinful people. The story of that sacrificial love. What Peter is saying right here is your hope cannot come from anything that you are able to accumulate or amass. It can't come from money. It can't come from possessions. It can't come from other people. It can't come from family. It can't come from relationships. It can only come from a true, compelling story of sacrificial love. That's How? Human beings are redeemed from the trap of their pointless lives or their po- the pointless sense of life. Peter goes on to say, this, he, Jesus was foreknown before the foundations of the world and manifest in these last times. This is incredible. Peter is saying right here, hey, this wasn't like plan B. It wasn't like God had this plan and then people came along and they messed up everything. God was like, oh no, what do I do? Okay, here's plan B. He has been planning this before the world existed. Planning to give an expression of this love to people when the time came. Manifest in these last times. This compelling story of sacrificial love has been God's plan from the beginning. And we see this plan unfolding through the Old Testament. Peter isn't the first one to talk about this. That word that he used, ransomed or redeemed comes from an old, biz, uh, an old business terminology in the Old Testament where you had the ability to buy back a slave with your own money, buy them out of bondage. In the Old Testament, it's a specific word called goel, the Hebrew word goel, which means specifically a redeemer or a family redeemer. It was this concept in the Old Testament where there was slavery, often people were, uh, sold themselves into slavery in order to get rid of a debt that they amassed. And God in his grace in that structure deposits this allotment for grace where he says, you know what, if, uh, even if you get yourself into slavery through your own, uh, through your own debt, uh, there is going to be a person in your family that I'm going to christen who will be called a, a goel, a family redeemer. They will have the right and ability and obligation to buy you back at their own expense and free you turns up in Leviticus 25, 25. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem, Goel, what his brother has sold. So we see that all the way at the beginning. But then we also see instances and stories where this actually happens. And they're some of the most inspirational stories in the Bible. One of the most famous is in Ruth. Remember when we went through Ruth? Ruth is about this woman, Ruth who's a Moabite, outcast, divorced. Because of her status, she's completely ostracized and outcast from society, marginalized with, uh, with no power and no privilege at the behest of other people who are in power. And she's in this moment with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she's gleaning in these fields and gleaning another act of grace by God was this allotment for the poor to come in after a harvest has been picked and they could glean, meaning they could take the leftovers so they wouldn't starve. And so Ruth is gleaning in this field. She comes back in Ruth chapter 2, uh, two to Naomi, her mother-in-law, with bushel baskets on her back. And Naomi's like, what? how was your day of gleaning? It seems awesome. And she says, where, where did you go? Where did you glean? This is incredible. Where did you work? Who's this guy that, that let you into this field? Blessed be that man who took notice of you. And Ruth goes on to say to her mother-in-law about what, what happened. Yeah, there was this guy, super hot, it was awesome. Went to his field, he like looked at me like we talked, and he let me glean, I came back with all this stuff. And his name's Boaz. And you can imagine Naomi's uh, uh, jaw just dropping to the floor. She's been around the block a few times, she knows Boaz. And what she says is, wow, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi said to her, Ruth, this guy, I know him. He's a close relative of ours. He is one of our family redeemers. Goel. So we see this this picture of a redeemer all throughout the Old Testament. And yet in all of those examples, I love how God does this through the scriptures. When he speaks about himself, he gives us like real life relational examples. Otherwise, he'd be too big and cosmic for us to wrap our minds around. So he he gives us examples, like marriage in Ephesians is an example of his love for the church. And this is another one. And in Isaiah 41, verse 14, we get a glimpse of that, where he says to the people of Israel, Fear not, you worm, Jacob. (laughs) (laughs) love that. (laughs) You men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord, your Goel your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. So we're like, oh. He's not just telling us these stories to give us inspirational moralisms about other people. This is pointing in some way to him. And he leaves it like that until we see Peter, who then makes the connection to Jesus Christ. And in a phrase, he says, you have not been ransomed. There's that phrase again. There's that word. Same concept by your money or your things, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, your family redeemer, your go Peter makes that connection to Jesus and then throws in the faces of the marginalized and the hurting and the depressed and the disappointed and those who have been set back. This story that has been being told for centuries has been, look at this, for the sake of you, You might be in this building today feeling a little bit overlooked, passed on, passed by by the world, by your friends, by your coworkers. Maybe you're feeling washed up, undervalued, unworthy. And yet God has been planning to meet you since before the world existed. And say, well, I'm underappreciated at work. Yeah, but God has been pursuing you before you were born. That's what Peter's saying. God has been planning to meet with you in a sphere of history since before the world existed. He's been waiting for this moment. Who cares what other people think about you? God saw this day and he was aiming for it because he loves you so much this is the compelling story of sacrificial love that reaches deeper than any money can any possessions and certainly any bloodlines it is the love that is thicker than our own blood as Paul says God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given, us, uh, given to us I want to back up And say, well, why is Peter saying there's a lot of responsibility for those who have been set free in Christ? Because of this. Peter's saying, you couldn't save yourself. God had to save you. And to those who have been given much, much is required. He didn't save you to live a life for yourself. He saved you to participate in a bigger story than your own. And therefore, with that freedom, with that liberation comes tremendous responsibility. So that's why Peter says, live your time in exile in holy fear. Lastly, what do, you, well, what do you do with that freedom? Remember, you will be held accountable for the way that you lived your life in this life. How, so how would you step out in freedom? What are some of the first things that you do? Peter ends this passage by saying, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart." A lot going on in that first phrase, just quickly unpack it. When he says, "purified your souls," it's just a euphemism for salvation. When you were converted. And he talks about how you were converted, you were converted through an, an obedience to the truth. In other words, he's saying, no one's converted simply because they, they had an intellectual assent to some doctrine. It's not by finding the gospel agreeable, like, yeah, Jesus did some things, awesome. It's by looking at that story and embodying it with your life. It has taken you over. He's saying, you who have been purified by your souls, you've been converted by an embodiment of the gospel for, and then he gives the purpose of all of that, for a sincere brotherly love. Here's where it starts to get gritty. Gritty. Converted with an embodiment to the truth for what purpose? Remember, this is the opposite of pointlessness. What is the purpose? An unremitting, he says earnestly, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That word earnestly means unremittingly, without stopping, earnestly with fervor, with everything in you, loving with a sincere brotherly love. Whenever we see love in the New Testament, there's so much going on dynamically. We have one word to describe love, love. The Greeks had four. You might have heard C.S. Lewis famously speaking about these four words. There's the word uh, for sacrificial love, agape. There's the word for uh, family type affection, storge. There's the romantic type of love, eros. And then there's this word called phileo, which is brotherly love. Uh, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And this speaks about friendship. love where, where Peter's going with this. He's saying, in other words, since you were born again, which entails an embodiment of the truth for the purpose of loving each other in a specific way. Not romantic love. Not even self-sacrificial love, although the Bible does teach that. Not the love that families experience, but friendship. Deep, abiding friendship. Quote C. S. Lewis in his book The Four Loves, he described what, what Peter's saying here in this way. Friendship or Phileo arises out of mere companionship, when two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste which the others do not share, and which till that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. Hey! It's that bond that you have. And the beautiful thing about this type of love is that it's not tied into any sense of survival. It could be argued that uh, uh, everything from agape to uh, storge, family love, uh, to uh, uh, charity and all of those different types of things are tied into our survival. We have to experience those things or society breaks down. This is the only one that is not. In fact, to quote C.S. Lewis again, friendship has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things which gives value to survival. This is God wanting humanity to thrive. And he says, if you have been born again, kind of been talking a lot about unpacking what Peter's been saying. You've been been lost in that. Let me just summarize his point. He's saying, if you've been born again by God's love, you need to love others. And specifically here, not just the whole world, although we're certainly called to do that, but to love specifically your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love one another in the church. In other words, you have been transferred from a pointless life, to a life-giving relationship with God which is further catalyzed by a relationship with God's people. This is exactly... The purpose and the point of our existence that Jesus prayed for in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 20, verse 20 and 21. He says to the Father, I pray that they, speaking of the church, would all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Isn't this incredible? Speaking about divine transforming union. Us with God, but also catalyzed in our relationships with one another. The point of this whole passage can be summed up in this. If you've been saved, you'll know because your life is marked by brotherly love for others in the church. Brotherly love is not just the fulfilling purpose of people. To be able to experience the beauty of that, it's actually also the test of whether we even know God to begin with. The Apostle John would say in 1 John chapter 2, verse 9 and 11, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. He doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. gets worse. The next chapter says we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. That's the fruit of our salvation. Whoever does not love still abides in death. 1 John chapter 4. He can't stop saying It must be important. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And who can forget Jesus himself in John thirteen they'll know you belong to me. They'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. You may say at this, yeah, I get it. Love everybody. Love God, love everyone. I think I got that down. I love pretty well. But if you begin to flesh it out, if you move beyond love being a pat on the back during the three minutes that we gather on Sunday mornings to like real life, here's what it actually looks like. You ever heard of the one another passages in the Bible? There are phraseology for all the, here's how you behave towards each other in the, in the church. I just want to read a few of them, not even all of them, just a lot of them. This is flesh put on love. Mark nine fifty. Be at peace with one another. John six. Don't grumble among one another. Romans twelve. Be of the same mind with one another. Accept one another. Don't bite, devour, and consume one another. Don't challenge or envy one another. Be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving to one another. Bear with and forgive one another. Seek good for one another, and don't repay, uh, repay, repay evil for evil. Don't complain against one another. Confess your sins to one another. Tolerate one another in love. Be devoted to one another in love. Give preference to one another in honor. Don't be haughty. Be of the same mind. Serve one another. Be subject to one another. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Clothe yourself in humility towards one another. Don't judge one another. Don't put a stumbling block in a brother's way. Bear one another's burdens. Don't lie to one another. Speak Truth, the challenging truth to one another. Encourage and build up one another. Stimulate one another the love and good deeds. Pray for one another and be hospitable to one another. That's love. And this fleshing out of what love looks, uh, looks like on an unremitting basis, Peter says, do this earnestly from a pure heart, is really hard. How many of you in the last week have failed in at least one of those things? I think I failed in half of them in the last two days. What do you do with that? Well, number one, the testimony of Scripture is if that's not something bubbling out of your heart, He's not expecting perfection. He's saying, that's a part of your life. If it's not, you are either not born again like you thought or I think more commonly you're just immature in your faith and here's where you need to grow growing in love for other people the tangible evidence and fruit of our experience of God's love so you may say well how do I do that when there are clearly times when you don't want to do it and you know those times you're like the other week I was in a parking lot it's always in a parking lot too there was this situation where I was like, oh, I just wanted to blast this person, and I'm like, and immediately one of these passages came to mind, (laughs) and I was like, I see what you're saying, God, but you don't understand, (laughs) Better to ask for forgiveness than permission, the saying goes. And I left that situation completely failing to love, going, why do, why do I do that? There are clearly moments where even though I know the right answer and the right behavior, I can't, I can't seem to do it. What do we do with those moments where we're just angry at somebody? Our tendency as believers and as Christians is to just try harder. In fact, maybe that's what you're writing down in your notes or at least in your mind right now. Okay, the Bible says to love people. I don't love people very well. I'm going to try harder to love. And you make it through Monday. You love people because they're so nice. And then Tuesday you run into like real people. And then you're like, oh, he ate the parking lot. You know? Hey, listen, the gospel is not try harder. Remember what Peter said? That's what got you into, the tru- into trouble in the first place. You can't redeem yourself with money or possessions or people or things or effort. Someone had to intervene into your mess and steer you in the other way. Your way out is not by leaving this building going, I'm gonna love harder, I'm gonna turn on the love switch and somehow it's just gonna magically happen. Your, your way out of your feudal way of life is by entering, entering into the crucified love of God in Christ that was first given to you. It was by you drinking deeply of God's love for you even though you did nothing to deserve it. And he didn't, he, wasn't, he didn't just enter into that crucified love, that cruciform love, one time. That was the main time. That was the time that opened up the door. But it's every time God steps into our false self, every time he steps into our mess, and we, by faith, live by his love. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. He didn't say, I'm going to try harder to be like him. He said, I have been crucified with him. He died. I entered into his death and I died too to my feudal self. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. Yes, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Your freedom in life, the way that you step into the freedom is by stepping into the life-giving power of Jesus Christ who shows you how to love by lavishing you with love. And we allow him to crucify all of those dead parts in us every day, little by little, step by step, in all of those ways that we fail to give love and don't want to love others. And his love is birthed in us over time in relation to him. That's why Peter keeps using this metaphor of plants and seeds growing. It's growing within us as we grow closer to Christ. You see how Peter ties all of this in? He waited until the last two verses to talk about loving other people, and he's been and spending the other seven verses talking about how much God loves you. You want your life to change? Drink deeply of the love of the Father for you and towards you. The good news of the gospel is not that you loved other people so well, it's that you, in your undeservedness, have been so greatly loved by God. You have been loved intensely. Jesus says, fill up on that until it begins to spill out onto other people around you. In the grand scheme of things, there are so few things that we do that will ever last. When I was a kid, it was pogs. You remember those? Of course you don't. It was the dumbest thing that was ever invented. But we spent millions of dollars on these little cardboard chips. I actually entered into tournaments in stores playing for pogs. Instead of pink slips, you played for Pogs. This was like the sorry moment in my life. It was Pogs back then. It was Pogs and Power Rangers, and I've never seen something so quickly rise in the trending uh, world uh, of, of my friends and everyone around me, and so quickly disappear, like within a year. And things do that. The things that we're interested in—they're hot today, and they'll be gone tomorrow. In the grand scheme of things, few things that we do, if we actually were to take consideration of those things, how many of them will actually last? When I was a kid, it was Pogs and Power Rangers. Today, it's vaping, essential oils, skinny jeans, man buns, latte art. Like, the list is endless. (laughs) All good things. All good things. But how many of those things are going to be in your life 10 years from now? not saying get rid of the things that you enjoy I'm just saying is there anything in your life that you can look at and say this this is going to last forever Peter says love experienced in community will actually invest into eternity you want to know last two decades from now the way that we treat one another based on what we are experiencing from God you want to know what will last for decades that will never disappear? The ways that we are able to receive from God's love and then invest into people around us, big and small, man. In fact, Paul would say this. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we transition. I want to end with this passage. It says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, using that metaphor to speak about us, we're being joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I want to talk about an investment that will last for years, centuries, eternity, the way that we invest in others something that simply cannot happen well unless we are sitting at the feet of Jesus and receiving his love for us maybe your heart today is not sincere or pure maybe you look at this and you're like i am the last person who can do that rightly maybe you're struggling right now with loving people the last thing that you should the worst thing that you could do this morning is to run away from that either by saying i'm going to try harder to love even though i know it's impossible or by putting it out of your mind or by saying well that's not for me or maybe you know maybe it'll all work out or in shame looking at your mistakes and turning a blind eye and saying i don't want to think about that right now the best thing for you to do this morning is to face the things that you're struggling with and to know that this god who has been moving history to meet you will meet you right where you're at where's your struggle this morning Stay there. Stay in struggle. And allow his word to speak into your heart in the midst of the mess today and watch as the love of the Father begins to change who you are as a person from the inside out. Let's respond to his love this morning. Heavenly Father, come before you today by your word and ask that what we heard in your word would be wrestled with in tangible ways by your Holy Spirit Lord if there's anything that I said that's confusing or not of your will or not accurate depiction of you I just pray that you would cause us to forget that and to remember your still small voice as you pierce through the darkness and apply God's word to our hearts Pray God that those two things that Peter was hoisting up before us those experiences of love, that vertical relationship with you and those horizontal relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ would be healed today. For those who are far from God today, I pray that you would draw them near. For those whose relationships are awry, I pray that you would bring healing to them. And I pray that we would, maybe for the first time for some of us, experience that purpose eternal purpose that has been set in motion from the beginning of time. The people would be brought into a transforming union with their God. And whatever you have to do, Lord, to get us to that point, if it's to tear things out, rearrange the furniture of our hearts, deal with sin, whatever it is for the love set before us, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.